Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. And welcome to Redeemer. My name is Jason Myers, and I'm uh, excited and honored to be with you this morning uh, on Trinity Sunday. Uh, the Trinity, different concepts uh, within uh, Christian theology, like the Trinity or holiness, tend to be what we might think as pretty heady topics, topics that we might kind of pull back against. But there is a counterintuitive idea that, the, that these concepts are actually directly related uh, to our life uh, as a community together and uh, in our life as Christians as we seek to live out uh, God's calling on our life. Uh, today's story, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 and looking at the call of Moses and what really is an invitation into the life of God and God's self. And so I hope this morning that we can begin to see the profound implications of not only the Trinity, but also God's calling on our life. If you uh, will bow your heads with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. (laughs) Dear God, we come to worship you this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray that in this moment, and in in the midst of our uh, community here, that you would draw us near uh, into the life of yourself. And that in drawing near to you, that we will find who we are really called to be uh, in light of your son. And God, we pray in this moment that you would give us wisdom uh, to understand the things of you, uh, grace for the moments when we fail, and the power by your spirit to live them out. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, we're going to be in the book of Exodus this morning, and we're in chapter three, but I want to kind of set this up real quick. Uh, And as you think about experiencing God, uh, this is one of those stories uh, that definitely stands out. We have a burning bush. Uh, but there's also a part of the story that I think uh, might relate to us more, and that's the, the mundane nature of, of how we meet and experience God. I don't know how you would think about experiencing God, but it probably would, may, might be one of those burning bush moments, like that's how we think God would show up. Um, but I think we're going to see today in our story that God does show up sometimes in those ways, but oftentimes it's in the most um, unforeseen places. Uh, So far in the book of Exodus, a lot has already happened, and we're only in chapter 3. If you remember the story, uh, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt. But God says that he heard the cries of his people, he heard of the oppression, and he is going to rescue and redeem them. And Moses has had quite a series of events, too. From almost being murdered as a baby, he ends up growing up in Egypt under Pharaoh's house only to come to learn that he's actually not an Egyptian, but actually identified with the enslaved community over which he is is looking. And upon finding this out, he attempts to take matters into his own hands and murders an Egyptian slave driver, only to run for his life and flee Egypt thinking that his life is over. And that's just in the first couple chapters. The Israelites are still enslaved in Egypt, and God is still committed to his plan to rescue them. And it's still going to involve Moses, although he doesn't know that yet, and he isn't anywhere near Egypt at the moment. Moses probably thinks the story is over. He tried. It didn't work. I'm going into the wilderness, but it is far from over as we are going to see today. Today's story is special because at the heart of the story in Exodus, Moses is going to receive a call from God to a new vocation to liberate and free an oppressed people. 
because this is what God does. And the fascinating thing about this story in Exodus 3 is it looks a lot like other stories in the Bible, and that's where you and I are going to come in. You see, this is called the call of Moses, and it becomes the basis, not just for Moses, but there's a story in Samuel, the prophets, all their calls to service in God's ministry begin to look like this. And so this story becomes kind of the, the fountainhead on which people receive their callings from God. And I think that's where we can come to this story too, when we begin to say, okay, how does God call us into his life with him? And so I think this story has something to say for each and every one of us here today. It doesn't matter if you're a sixth grader, a college student, or a retired person. I believe God has a call for you today. And that's what we want to find out in this story. As I mentioned, Moses is far from Egypt at this point. He thinks his life and the story is over. In fact, we begin our story in verse 1 in the most unlikeliest of places, shepherding in the wilderness. You see, verse 1 says that Moses drove his flock into the wilderness and came to the mountain of God to Horeb. What a simple and devastating setting. Moses is watching sheep, and he keeps going further and further into the wilderness, away from everyone else. As he is moving the sheep along, he comes to a mountain known as Horeb that is later identified with Mount Sinai, pretty important mountain in the biblical story. What's fascinating is that this term Horeb there on the screen in Hebrew means dry or parched place, it means desolate. This is not the lush city dwelling or the crowded streets. This is the desolate place outside the populace. And it's in the wilderness that Moses will have an encounter with God on this mountain. As I mentioned, one might think that if you're going to meet God, you do so in a temple or a holy place. Yet this is not what happens in the story. God meets Moses as a shepherd in the wilderness. It's on an ordinary day doing a less than ordinary task that the most extraordinary event occurs. And here in Exodus 3, Moses is going to meet God, be called by God, and commissioned by God to liberate his people from oppression. Remember, Moses is not called by God in a vacuum. Exodus chapters 1 and 2 show us that slavery and oppression moves God to action in this story. When in a nation enslaves another people, it arouses God's anger and judgment, and he is moved to act on behalf of his creation. And now we come to one of the most famous stories in all the Bible, the burning bush. Now, it's worth noting that the passage itself doesn't really speculate as to the cause or rationale of how this could happen. I think the passage has bigger concerns in this story. Think about it. Remember the story. God is about to take Moses, a former Egyptian prince who identified with his enslaved and suffering people, He's going to take that enslaved group and use it to overthrow the most powerful nation the earth had ever seen, all without the slave colony picking up swords and then leading them out with reparations. I think a bush that is burning sounds a little bit easier to me in light of where this story goes. That's not the most fantastical thing to happen in this story, although it is. So how does this encounter happen? Take a look at verses two through four. Moses is moving sheep across the wilderness in search of water, and perhaps notices a bush on fire, a sight that might not be all too odd, since even in uh, the past few years for us, right, we've seen many stories of bushfires throughout the country in the last several years. Bushes catch on fire, but as Moses moves to see what's happening, 
this is where something highly unusual takes place. To say the least, Moses was intrigued. Take a look at verse 3. Moses thought, let me turn aside so that I might see that great sight. Definitely an understatement, right? Let me turn aside. This looks unusual. And Moses is drawn to the flame, but he's drawn by curiosity. And it's curiosity that leads to his calling. Are you curious? Do you look at the world through the eyes of curiosity? What I find so fascinating about this story is that Moses is curious about what is going on. Something is unexplainable in the sight of the bush, and Moses just has to figure out why. God can make use of human curiosity. God can make use of your questions. God can make use of your wondering, why is this the way it is? The reason I say this is take a look at verse 4. When Moses saw that the Lord, sorry, take a look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. Notice that God notices that Moses turns to look and then speaks to him. The curiosity gives space for God to speak and redirect Moses' life in a new calling to be Israel's leader. The story invites us to reflect on the nature of Moses' calling and the power of a call in the life of faith. If you've been around Redeemer or just any church for the last couple, I guess, decades, you've probably heard that we've been talking a lot about calling and vocation. And you might think that this is just like new words that the church is using to talk about something. Um, and it kind of is, because you see, this is part of an ancient tradition that goes back to a passage like this. Vocation and calling are two really helpful terms to help reframe how we understand our work and our life. So how do we understand the work that we are to do or that God is preparing us to do in these various seasons of life that we find ourselves in? This reminds me of a game I used to play when I was little. Maybe you remember it too. It's called The Game of Life. Remember? It's a quote, the great movie. I think it's Toy Story. Move your dice, move your mice, no one gets hurt. Is that the, that's a different game. Anyways, um, no, stick on this. The Game of Life. It was one of my favorite games because I'm a planner and I like to chart things out. So this game was made for me. Or maybe the game made me. It's a weird philosophical thing to think about now that I think about it. Um, but I've come to realize how kind of theologically problematic this game is, because that's what theologians do. They make everyday normal fun things like weird. So think about how theologically problematic the game of life is. Maybe you've never done that. Um, as you move around the board, you make choices about what you want to do in your life. You chart a course, right? You pick a career. You uh, pick various things that are going to go to college, a career. And hopefully, when you're playing the game, you get a career that makes a lot of money because that helps out in the game of life. And let's be honest, maybe in real life too, right? Um, so that you can be happy when the game ends, right? And now you're probably wondering, is he talking about the actual life or the game? Stick with me. Um, so simple, yet so misleading. You see, I'm not terribly old, but I am old enough and been around long enough to know that I've seen a lot of people actually play their actual life like the game of life. And you know what? Most of us don't end up happy. We end up jaded, disillusioned, and sometimes just plain bored with the choices that we've made. So what happened? 
what did the game lead us to believe that might not be true? Well, part of the concept, and this wasn't the purpose of the game, obviously, is that our concept of life should be shaped by our vocation and God's calling on our life. But don't mishear me. I'm not saying a new job is the cure, although in some cases, certainly that could be true. But it's probably not in all of them. You see, what we've missed is that vocation allows us to see our work that we are currently doing in light of the work of God's redemption. And now this will take our particular path in your life, for sure. But that path is shaped by knowing that our work is part of the bigger work that God is doing in the world. Because for far too long, we've thought about work as like there's like church work and every other work. And if I'm not involved in church work, I'm not doing something that's important. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You see, God wants all work to matter. Your work matters to God because work matters to God. God is actively involved with you in the work that you are already currently doing. Like Moses, the question is, are we curious to see where God is at in the midst of that? The work matters, whether it's in an office, in the garden, or at home. Now, often we think about our calling or or vocation at stages like high school graduation that we're just about to celebrate, or college graduations like we have been celebrating, where we pick a career and invest ourselves in that work. And these are important moments. They certainly are. And for those students who are here, it's worth reflecting on and praying about the work that God has called you to do, because Lord knows you are going to spend an incredible amount of time doing it. And what better time to discover how God has called you to your work than at the beginning? However, I would add, in our story today in Exodus 3, Moses is not a recent college grad. He's not. When we meet Moses in Exodus 3, most scholars think he's about 40 years old. Moses gets his calling much later in life. In fact, what's about to happen here will be Moses' third job. Remember, first, he was the prince of Egypt. Cue the movie. Second, he was a shepherd, his current task upon meeting the great bush. And now he is about to be a revolutionary leader, all at the ripe old age of about 40. What a different story than the one that we usually tell ourselves. You see, encountering God in the mundane can change everything. What this story tells us is that your story is not done, no matter where you find yourself. Some of us, I'm going to go out on a limb here, might be at or near 40 in this room. Okay, my math might be off a little bit, but stick with me. What this story teaches is that it's never too late. Discovery is discovery, no matter when it happens. So are you curious? How is God speaking to you in this season of life? You might ask, what should I do? How do I have that conversation? I think verse 4 might give us a clue. When God calls Moses, notice his response. His only response is, here I am. The only response to the great I am is here I am. And Moses then hears God recount his promises and purposes for what he is about to do, which is an incredible act of justice for the oppressed. When you want to figure out God's calling on your own life, I think we can take note of these few points in Moses' story. And so I've numbered them. First off, calling begins with God. This one might be obvious, right? The calling on your life begins with God. It's less about you inventing a purpose or a plan and more about what God is already doing on your behalf. Moses 
really has no clue about what's about to take place. This wasn't part of his plan. This wasn't part of his purpose. Here's the truth about our lives. God is already at work among us. God is already at work among you, and he has not forgotten you. I think Moses probably thought, I'm just going to go out into the wilderness and just be forgotten. I tried, I failed, but God had not forgotten about Moses. Now, your encounter might not be as surprising as a burning bush. I don't expect to walk by our son's high chair and have it spontaneously burst into flames and for God to speak to me through it. And you probably won't think that your desk chair will probably do that either. But honestly, I don't think it has to. Because God speaks and you are called forth. You see, for anyone in the community of faith, there is no uncalled life. That's the other misnomer. Everyone is called. There is only a God who knows and calls us by name, even if we believe we are unseen and uncalled. Our perspective on that is the one that changes when we realize that God has been interested in us all along. Second, I think what I see in the story of Moses is presence and availability. Moses' simple response is, here I am. Is that our posture? I'm so amazed that Moses' response is without knowing where it's going. It's a simple, I'm available. Have you ever thought about how much easier Moses' life would have been had he gone, oh, weird, a burning bush, and just moved on? Like, just, yep, that's strange. Next. Um, But that's the thing. It's the curiosity to what God is up to that's key. And God can use that curiosity. So are you curious to what God is up to in your life? Are you available? Did you know that there are people here at Redeemer who would love to help you figure this out? We have uh, sitting amongst us, of course, several staff members. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and thinking, what might the call on my life be? Well, as a church staff, we would love to sit over coffee or a meal and chat about what God is up to in your life. We also have spiritual direction, which is helpful in this regard. And any of our priests and deacons would love to sit with you and help identify what God is up to. We also have someone named Tom Benson who works with us in our abbey whose main task is looking at spiritual direction and helping people figure out what is God up to in my life? Maybe this week it's a time to reach out to him or reach out to one of us and set up a meeting to begin that journey and see where God is at work. I'm just surprised that Moses has a willingness to do whatever God calls him to do, despite not knowing the outcome. At this point in the story, Moses is woefully unaware of just how much his calling would cost his life. And that's the issue with callings, though. They come at a cost. We lose something, but what we gain is even greater. They come at a cost because it places God back at the center of the story where our plans are subject to God's purposes. Uh, Third, I think God reminds Moses that he's becoming part of the story. You might be thinking, how does that happen in this passage? Where's the story element? Right there in verse 6. Notice what Yahweh says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, don't back away from the short genealogy here. I know that can be a little boring. God is invoking a story, and it evokes a story that includes promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those promises were that his family would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth by bearing out God's image to the world around them. That was their vocation and calling as a people. Big problem, though, in the story. If you remember the plotline of Exodus, although this was the promise, we can't miss the fact that 
while we're in the book of Exodus, the Israelites are not in a state of blessing, but in a state of bondage. They are being oppressed by the Egyptians, and the promises of God look vastly unfulfilled at the current moment. God, where are those promises? They look quite broken. So notice something with me about Moses' calling. The calling on Moses' life is the availability to stand in between the promises of God and the places in the world where those realities are unfulfilled. This is where Moses' story grows. This is the call on our lives, too, to have the availability to stand in between we know what are God's promises and the places in our world where those look vastly, vastly unfulfilled. Look at verses 9 and 10. God sees the oppression and says to Moses, now I am sending you to bring my people out of Egypt. This is interesting, and maybe not what we would expect. The story of God from Genesis to Revelation is God partnering with humanity to bring about his purposes and promises. God wants to involve you just as he involved Moses. And this is where that availability comes in. In our life, where are we standing between those realities? Do we know God's promises? Do we know about his purposes for this world? And are we attuned to the, to the suffering around us, to those places where that is incomplete? This is a call to be invested in our world and seeing God's story come true in our place and time. And you matter to that story, just as Moses did. Now, what I find fascinating about this is that God involves Moses in the process. Moses matters to the story. You see, we matter to the story too. Just to give one example of standing between God's promises and and broken places, students, as many of you know, one major place where we need to see God's story come true is in the area of depression, loneliness, and suicide. You know, as I do, how many people struggle with finding connections to other people through the downsides of social media, the rapidly uh, fragmenting world. Isn't it at minimum that God's story in our life is one of relationship and welcome? That God invites us in, so we invite others in? And how might that be an antidote? That's what God is up to in this world, creating a new family of welcome and inclusion. Where might that friend be that needs a call or a text or a walk in the park to know that they are seen and loved by you, but also by God? What if God's calling on your life in this season is to be with a person in a really hard time of life and help them bear that burden so that they can see another day or to help them find the courage to speak to a counselor and to seek out help. Maybe that's what God has called you to in this moment. What I find in the whole story of Exodus is that God doesn't rescue alone. He certainly could have. In fact, much of Exodus is about how God judges oppression and those who oppress through miraculous signs and wonders. Yet, God includes Moses as his witness and messenger. God may be the power, but Moses is the voice. That's why God's call on Moses to partner with him to liberate the Israelites is so important. And notice what we learn about God in this story. God cares about oppression. In fact, if you take that element out of the story of Exodus, none of it makes sense. And those who, he cares about those who are oppressed as well. The Israelites cried out, And this moved God to action. I was remarking as I was studying this passage over the last couple weeks, at the end of chapter two, it said that God knew. 
and just a simple verb in Hebrew. God knew all along when different stories were circulating around about what was happening down in Egypt, God knew. And God is moved to see his justice come true on this earth. You see, the story is going to be transformed. Transformation is, the, is at the heart of the story. Everything in Exodus is transformed, including Moses and the people. If you think about the plot line of Exodus, at the beginning, the people are enslaved, and by the end of it, they will be liberated. What changes? God's presence in the story. Because that's what God's presence does. It transforms people and places. God is holy, and his holiness transforms. That's what's so special about calling and knowing that. It sets you apart, or in terms of the Bible, it makes something holy. And one major aspect of Moses' story here is that the calling is transformed by an encounter with God's holiness. And that's the part of the story we might be more familiar with. This is the part that draws us in as well. It's fire. What we need to know here is that the sign of the flame and the burning bush represent God's holiness. And notice that Moses is not repelled or afraid of the fire. It piques his interest, and it makes him ask, what is going on over there? Watch what happens in verse 5. It's fascinating. Once Moses draws near, we hear the famous lines. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place you are standing on is holy ground. Taking off one's sandals, of course, in the ancient world and even in some places today, is seen as a sign of awe and respect for others. But here's what we might miss. Within the ancient world, there were sacred places where it was believed that the divinity resided or it was like a portal to the divine. There were like secret spots all over the world and you could stumble upon them and find them. And so that concept of a space being sacred on its own is entirely missing from the Old Testament. So there's this ancient idea that you could stumble upon a holy place because there's holiness and how they exist. There are portals to the divine. That doesn't exist from Genesis to Malachi. We do get holy spaces. Don't get me wrong. But the holy spaces become holy spaces because it's wherever God's presence chooses to reside. So in our story, it's not as if Moses stumbled on and discovered some unknown sacred place. There probably wasn't anything special about it. What made it unique was that God decided to show up there, and it was now a holy space. It was now a sacred space because God's presence both transforms the space and the conversation. And this is a counterintuitive idea for us, that holiness draws people in. Now, I know what you might be thinking. I thought it did the opposite. I mean, when I try to live the life that Jesus calls me to live, people are going to not like that, and they're going to respond negatively to me. Um, I want to challenge that narrative just a little bit from one of opposition to one of invitation. It is true that a distinct way of life can draw undue negative attention. Obviously, that's the case. Always possible. But I think this story and a host of others throughout the Bible show us that holiness is an invitation to a new way to be human, to God's way of being human. You see, holiness is less about God squashing all the fun possibilities and rather providing a framework for human flourishing and an invitation into the life of our triune God. This is how God lives, and God wants you to live that way too. So the holiness that God calls his people into is a mirror of his own holiness his distinct way of life that invites others in. And one not, not to miss in the story of the burning bush, that it is a fire that resides in the bush. 
but does not consume it. God's presence was often portrayed as fire. Think about it and a little bit later in the Old Testament. The Israelites leave Egypt. They are led by a pillar of fire through the wilderness at night. And God's presence was often associated with flames. This wouldn't be the only time or place. We are one week post-Pentecost when God's presence would once again be associated with fire and flame. This time coming to rest and reside, but not consume the apostles. And the giving of God's spirit is God's presence residing in us. Now let's put the pieces together. If you have the spirit, you embody God's presence wherever you go. That makes every place you go, every conversation you have, have the potential to be a sacred space. The space is holy because you are there and God is there with you. God's presence transforms all the elements. What does this mean? It means your workplace is holy. Your home is holy. Your friendships are holy. Your classroom is holy. Your desk is holy. Your parenting is holy. Your work is holy. Your dining table is holy. Here's the profound truth. Because God's presence resides in you, everything becomes sacred or holy. Your day can be seen in a new light. When you're listening to a friend share about their problems, that becomes a holy encounter. God shows up in the midst. The question is, are we curious to see where God is at? When you're changing diapers or preparing a meal, although they might not look like it, those mundane moments are holy moments because you are there and God is there. And are we curious on what God is up to? So how do we encounter these holy moments in our life with God? What can attune us to that curiosity? As Anglicans, we have some great resources. And as we close, I want to share a few of those with you. Oh, it's right here. The first, sorry, is our Book of Common Prayer. We call it Book of Common Prayer, and we think, okay, that's like prayer time. But if you ever look through the Book of Common Prayer, there's a whole bunch of prayers in there for ones not oriented around a meal or going to bed. And what I find fascinating about that is that the prayer book is communicating rather loudly that there are many moments in our day that can become holy in an encounter with God. There are prayers for significant transitions in life. There are prayers for when you're lonely. There are prayers for the work that you do. Maybe this week you can find a copy. It's actually online for free and you can download it. Page 640 and following is a whole set of what are known as collects or prayers. And they're meant to pique our interest in the curious work that God is doing from eight to five, from Monday through Saturday. Second, there's another book called Every Moment Holy, which really just dials it in, right? Every Moment Holy. It is something very similar, and it has prayers well for every moment. Moments when there is something to celebrate or mourn. Significant moments, like when someone moves away or when you're uncertain about a decision. There are prayers for mundane things, like watching a sunset or going to the ocean. They even have prayers for the welcome of a new pet. Again, every moment holy. What this book and the BCP, the Book of Common Prayer, do is they're trying to help us see that our life with God is a holy encounter and is part of God's calling on our own life. As we begin to enter into the holiness of God, we are transformed. Do you want to be changed? Encounter God. In my own life, I've seen this. When our son August was born, uh, Drew came to the hospital. And in the midst of a hospital room, he took out one of those prayers, and he read one of those prayers. And we encountered God in that space. 
amidst the blinking lights and the stale room and the weird smells. We encountered God in that space by being reminded of God's story with us. God's holiness is powerful. And it's my hope and prayer this week that you encounter God and his holiness and are invited to worship and be transformed by our God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.